Um, so turn in your Bibles to Haggai. So we uh, have today, and then two more minor prophets to cover in our march through the 12. I said that leads well, what Marlene prayed leads well into Haggai, because Haggai forces us to ask some questions. Haggai forces us to stop and consider our lives, which is perhaps something we don't do all that often. How often do we stop and turn off the noise of TV and music and podcasts and the endless distractions and diversions that both are coming at us and that we give ourselves to and consider how our life is going? Are things working as you hope and as you would expect in your life? Are the things that you are devoting yourselves to uh, paying off, giving you what you expected out of them? Perhaps if you continued on your course of life just as you are today with no significant change, think about where you would be as you approach death and, and would you be satisfied with the results of your life? Most importantly, what role does God play in your life? Is he significant? Is he, is he weighty? Do you not only believe in him, but trust him and fear him and seek him first and love and worship him above all else? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good and that it is good to both know him and be known by him? These are some of the questions that the book of Haggai and God's providence forces us to consider. Uh, repeatedly throughout this short book, just two chapters, uh, God uh, calls on the people to consider their ways. Consider the outcome of their way of life. Is it paying off? And if not, could it be that it is due to their failure to seek God, their forsaking of God? Could there be a, a connection between their slackness in pursuing God and the frustration and lack of satisfaction in their lives. And this was the fact. This wasn't, in fact, the case for these people. And it certainly could be the case for us today. So, as Marlene just did so wonderfully, I would encourage you just be in prayer for God to speak to you, as we sang about earlier as well. Um, this is a book that forces us to reflect and to consider the state and, and direction of our hearts, our dispositions, our loves, whether we claim to believe in God or not, whether we claim to be a Christian or not. Is our life God-centered and God-directed? And does our time, our money, our, our energy, our thoughts, and everything that we give ourselves to reflect the worth and the goodness and the satisfaction that is in God? Or is God merely on the periphery of our lives, if he's there at all? Okay. Now, before we get into the text of Haggai, we need to understand a bit of the context because about 100 years has passed between last week in um, Zephaniah and in the previous books that we looked at and where we are at today. So the last several prophets that we looked at spoke, were speaking to the people of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, Israel was split into northern Israel and southern Judah. 
Um, and they were, so the last few were speaking to Judah. The northern kingdom had already been exiled uh, and, and conquered and, ex- and taken into exile. And these last few prophets were warning the people of Judah that the same would happen to them if they did not heed God's word, turn from their sin, turn back to God. Uh, in essence, the, the, all the curses that God had spoken of, had warned of in, in back in the book of Deuteronomy for faithlessness, for idolatry, uh, would come upon them if, if they did not turn. And this is what has happened in the last, in the time period here. So since the time of Zephaniah, Judah was conquered and taken into exile, as God had said, by the Babylonians. Uh, so just give you some dates, first in 597, and then again 11 years later in 586 B.C. Now to, send, to, to give you a sense of the significance of this, uh, recall with me some of the promises that God had made to these people. God had chosen this people and made a promise to to these people, the descendants of Abraham, to bless them. He had promised to give them a land, this promised land of which the city Jerusalem and the temple there came to have a central and important role. Uh, So Jerusalem is, is within the territory of Judah. And he had also promised to rule over them through a kingly line uh, from David. So you got blessing of this people, the, the land, especially Jerusalem, and the temple there, and then this kingly line. And, and all of this is not just about the Israelites. No, God had said way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, uh, I will bless you and your descendants, and through them I will bring blessing to all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. So this is God working out his grand um, global plan to bring blessing to all people. And this covenant or this commitment on God's part runs throughout the Old Testament. This is what God is up to. This is what God is doing. And so at this point in the story, as Judah, Israel's already been taken to to exile. Judah now is in exile. Um, It seems to be the loss of all hope. Seems that God's promises have failed, though not without reason, because they have been faithless. God's people are removed from the land. The temple is destroyed. Um, and the reign of David's line seems to be finished off. The king is deported, and instead of him, uh, they, uh, Babylon sets up a, t- a governor over the land who is a, is a Jew, but is not from the line of David. So, again, God's promised blessing of this people, and through them, all the peoples of the, of, of the earth, all this grand plan that God is bringing about seems to have been finished, seems to have failed. And again, this was ultimately done by God because of their sin. But as we've seen, these prophets not only speak of, warn of this judgment to come if there is unrepentance, but they always offer hope. They always put these promises of what, something that God is going to do in the future, this glorious plan that God will bring about for his people, that this glorious future of a remnant that God would save and he would, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, delight over and sing over and, and just in wonderful language. This was not the end. It was clear that judgment and exile would not be the end. And so with Haggai now, about 100 years has passed, that glorious future has come about, sort of. 
in part. So historically, the Babylonians who had conquered uh, Judah, they were um, within a few decades uh, conquered themselves by the Persians. Persian, the, the Persian Empire began to, to, to grow about this time. And soon, quickly after this, the Persians, the Persian king gave a decree that the Jewish exiles could return to their land, could return to Jerusalem. Um, and they did this over a period of, 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 of uh, many decades, but originally about 50,000 of them returned to Judah. And right away they began to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. But then they stop as some of the other peoples around them discourage them and, and make them afraid and uh, frustrate them. And they become afraid to, to keep building the temple and they get distracted by other things. And, and God's place of dwelling among them sits ruined, sits unfinished. And so that sets up Haggai. Uh, Haggai is speaking to the people of Judah about 16 years after that first group has come back into the land and returned to Jerusalem. Uh, we actually know the exact dates, like to the day of Haggai's four prophecies. Uh, he tells us the first one is in August, August 29th of 520 BC, and then they all happen within about four months, so through to December of 520 BC. Okay, so we're going to read the first few, uh, first 11 verses actually as we get into this. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, hence how we know what day this is, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So in many ways, this is a great time in Israel, right? I mean, in the big picture, they're, they're home, they're freed from their enemies, from external rule. They can worship God at Jerusalem. God had kept his promise and brought them back to the land. And yet God says that there's a problem. They're busy with their houses, with their lives, with their priorities, and they have forsaken God's house, God's priorities. But of course, this is not just about this physical building of the temple and, and its condition. This is ultimately about the condition of their hearts, right? The, the temple represented God's presence among them. 
It was where they met with God, where they offered sacrifices, which was a means of them experiencing God's grace and understanding that God is a God of grace. It wasn't just rote rituals they went through. It It was meant to teach them about God and for them to draw near to God understand that he wanted a relationship with them. Um, Notice what God says in verse 8. He says, that I may take pleasure in it, the temple, and that I may be glorified. Again, surely God is not simply saying, I I just want to see this building, and I want to take pleasure in this building, and it's magnificent. No, he is saying, I want to take pleasure in dwelling among my people and having them love and worship and make much of me. This is what God has created us for. This is what God has been up to from the beginning. And yet the Israelites, a mere 16 years after being freed and coming back into the land, they've already forgotten this. God is no longer very significant in their lives. And so I think one of the things we can see right here clearly is that God's purpose is not just to give us good things so that we can then be self-sufficient and not really need God anymore. And just kind of get on with our lives. I mean, God had given them many good things. He had blessed them. But God's purpose is to live in relationship with us. And to, for us to know and love and worship and enjoy him. And as part of that, he delights in giving us good things. But not so that we can take him or leave him. As long as we have his good things. Jesus says in Matthew 16, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? Now, we often read that, and I think we just think about eternity. Well, i got to get eternity secured. But he's not just talking about the eternal state of our lives here. He's talking, as you read the couple verses before this, Jesus is talking about the value of knowing God, of knowing Christ. Beginning now and into eternity, of course. What will it profit a man if he gains everything in the world but misses out on Christ? Like the Israelites, we can put all of our energy and focus into taking care of our material needs and and wants. Or perhaps seeking after great and memorable experiences. Just having a good time in life finding security and safety here and now. And then if we have some time after that, have some energy after that, we can give that to God, whatever we have left. The words of Jesus elsewhere are, are, are extremely piercing in this matter where he says you can only have one master. You can't actually serve two different things. You can't actually serve God and money or experiences or security or family or food or drink, whatever it is. But if God is your master, if you come to God, you come to the one who delights to give good gifts to his children, who feeds the birds and and clothes the flowers of the field, will he not, of course, take care of you, his child? Of course he will. So you don't need to worry about all of that. Seek him first trust God. And so all of these commands that God gives us to seek him first, to to love him above all else, to have no other gods before him, all of these are not just mere commands. They're also invitations to see that he is good and satisfying. 
that there is satisfying life in him, that he will take care of his people. So this is what God is doing here and what God is saying through Haggai. But to, to drive home the point, he calls the people, as we've seen, to consider their ways. And in this, he's calling them to consider how their, their toil, their work, their efforts have been frustrated. Um, in verse 6, he says, they've sown much and harvested little, eaten but never had enough. They clothe themselves, but no one's warm. Their wages go into a bag with holes. This is just poetic language to convey that God has frustrated them, left them unsatisfied. He's kept them from finding joy in life because they have forsaken him. So there's a general principle here, right? Obedience to God brings blessing, and disobedience to God brings frustration, brings dissatisfaction. Uh, this is essentially the message of the book of Proverbs, right? There's this, this essential general rule to life because life is under God, and God sets it up this way. Now, we also know that not every difficulty in our life comes about because of a specific sin, uh, such that we can just say, well, you know, I can just kind of fix this area of my life, and, and then kind of I can control God, and God's going to have to bless me, and we'd be free of every difficulty. Uh, the book of Job makes this abundantly clear, as does Jesus' life and Paul's life. We can't immediately connect every difficulty in our life to a sin that we can just get rid of and life will be free of difficulty. And yet, it is clear here and elsewhere that God would at least have us consider that there may be a connection between our sin and the frustration and dissatisfaction and difficulties in our lives. Consider your ways. That's what he's saying here to the people of Judah. Now, this is certainly the case if we refuse to come to God at all. If we refuse to, to recognize God, to acknowledge God, if we are trying to live and rule our lives apart from God, refusing to repent of our sin and receive the salvation that is in him. We are made, again, to be in relationship with God. And if we reject this, there will be curses like we see here in our life. But this also certainly has relevance to those of us who have come to God in faith, but are distracted, perhaps building our own homes and lives while God's house remains in shambles. Now, we know from the New Testament that this physical temple of which God is uh, calling the, the people of Judah to rebuild was a, temp, uh, a temporary symbol or shadow of an eternal reality, that the place where God now dwells amongst his people isn't a building. We don't call this building a temple. You know, this isn't a message about a building project where that you need to give to so we can, that's not the main point going on here. No, God dwells among his people. And he does this both individually. He dwells within us, those who have uh, turned to him in faith, but he also dwells among us corporately. We are the temple of God. We are where God delights to, do, to dwell. And so consider, consider your ways. What is the condition of the temple that is your heart? Does God reign in you, 
Is he weighty and significant in your life? Or are you distracted by many other things, looking to find satisfaction and contentment and happiness in many other things, work, family, food, drink, pleasures, experiences, exercise, and ultimately neglecting or just giving God whatever is left. In this also, what role does the church, the church body that is the temple of God play? Uh, God loves the church enough to die for it. God, as we see here, takes pleasure in the place where his spirit dwells, with, which is this body, and he's glorified by the church. Do you love the church? Do you love the place where God's spirit dwells and among whom God works? Do you give yourself to serve for the benefit and health of the church and for God's glory? Do you allow the church to minister and serve you as God intends, or do you keep at a distance? Certainly in these things, there is blessing if we obey. Uh, if this was true for the people of Judah and this physical temple, certainly this is true for us and the blood-bought temple that is the church. But this is not the end of Haggai. Starting in verse 12, we see the people respond to this call for, for rebuilding and, and, and reassessing their priorities. And we're told that they fear God. They respond by immediately obeying God's word and beginning to rebuild the temple. They repent of their sin and they obey. Uh, this is one of the more encouraging times in the, in the prophets where the people actually hear the word of Haggai and, and respond and they heed God's word. And then God tells them a little uh, further on in chapter 2, verse 19. He says, from this day on, after they listened and they obeyed, he says, from this day on, I will bless you. So again, there is blessing in obedience. Um, there is blessing in obedience. Now, this isn't meant to lead us to merely try to get what we want from God with some measure of outward obedience. As we, if we can kind of control God, and we can just kind of give Him some outward devotion, give Him our religious efforts, our morality, our outward respectability. No, we know from Scripture all throughout that God wants our hearts. That he actually wants us to love Him, which is not something that we can just kind of take part uh, that we can do in this one area of of our life, kind of buy God off, and then get on with our lives. No, there's no gaming the system to merely get what we want while rejecting God. But at the same time, there are promises that seeking God brings blessing. God is not opposed to drawing us to himself in part with promises of rewards some of which come in this life and some of which come in the next. Uh, God gives us promises that he is good and rewards those who seek him. Hebrews eleven six: whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God is not opposed as part of the means of his drawing, him drawing us to himself to, to show us his goodness and the goodness of coming to him. So 
So God promises to bless the people of Judah. And this is ultimately an affirmation of his commitment to the promise to Abraham to bless this people. God has not given up his plan and his promises. And then the rest of this book, the rest of chapter 2, gives us some clues as to what this blessing will look like. Um, And as we've seen throughout the Minor Prophets, there are some promises and prophecies that certainly have, to a degree, relevance in the immediate setting within a generation or so of what God will do, but also point us much further out in the future to what God will ultimately do. So we're going to look at just a couple of these. Haggai 2, starting at verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you peoples of the land, declares the Lord. Work, work on the temple, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. I'm with you. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, historically, this second temple, so Solomon had built the first temple, this second temple will um, be completed within four years' time of Haggai speaking. And uh, more and more exiles will come. We read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, exiles will come back from Babylon. Um, And then just before Jesus is born, Herod the Great actually goes on a a massive uh, renovation project of this temple. And uh, by the time of Jesus, we we know from some statements made in the Gospels that it is truly magnificent. Like, it is a sight to see. It has some glory. And yet if you know your Bibles, or history for that matter, this also brings up some, some questions. Because Jesus co- comes along and makes some very startling statements about this temple. Um, in what would have sounded extremely arrogant to the Jews, he, he says, he claims that something greater than the temple is here, um, referring to himself. And then he goes on, in, uh, in more, on more than one occasion, to predict that the temple would be destroyed. And he doesn't seem to be too upset about this. And then he implies that the real temple is actually his body, crucified for sins and resurrected. And then historically, this is what happens. We know that that the temple is destroyed. This temple was destroyed in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt. And so the final glory of this temple, the latter glory of this very temple, is certainly not greater than the previous temple. Uh, The promise that this would be a place of peace is certainly not the case with the city of Jerusalem. Much, much the opposite. So what's the point of all this? Well, through Haggai, God is leading the people to hope in a temple filled with glory to which all of the nations come and bring their wealth and at which there is peace. And this temple is ultimately Jesus, who is the radiance of the glory of God 
exact imprint of his nature. He shows us who God is, and he is the Prince of Peace, and he brings us peace. Uh, the author of Hebrews states this clearly in saying that the physical temple system with these priests and sacrifices is, is merely a copy and shadow of the heavenly realities. That Jesus enters into a greater and more perfect tent or temple, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by the means of his own blood. All along, the, the temple system that God had set up, God had set it up, but it was pointing forward to and preparing for Jesus who brings us peace through his death and resurrection and who is God's presence among us. And so the greatest blessing of God comes not through our obedience, though there is blessing in obedience, but ultimately the greatest blessing of God comes not through our obedience, but through Jesus. Salvation is not simply offering up the extent of our obedience and our righteousness and our worth and our seriousness and authenticity, but laying claim to Jesus's obedience and righteousness and worth by faith. All along, God's plan has centered on and culminated in the person and work of Jesus. And this is so that salvation might be truly of the Lord. His work so that we might see his goodness, his all-sufficiency, his glory, and so that we might forsake all boasting in ourselves and what we have done and offered to him and boast singularly in him alone. So this is what God is preparing for in Haggai. And then finally, the last few words of the book continue to point forward to Jesus. Beginning at verse twenty says, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And their horse, the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, it may not be immediately clear uh, what this has to do about Jesus or what this is speaking of at all. Uh, but one, what is, is significant here is that Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. The line of the kings that God had promised would, would rule over Israel and the line which was interrupted by the exile. He is the grandson of the king who ruled when Judah was conquered by the Babylonians. And at that time, God had actually spoken through the prophet Jeremiah, saying, though you were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off. So the signet ring um, is a sign of authority that God is bestowing some authority and rule on this, this king. And God has spoken to Zerubbabel's grandfather and said, I would tear you off. But here, God tells his grandson that he will make him like a signet ring, reaffirming his commitment to the line of David. What's more, many other prophecies leading up to this point had spoken of a righteous king to come from the line of David. This is one of the 
messianic major themes in the Old Testament that we see culminating and being fulfilled in Jesus. So just to read one significant one in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So it may seem like these promises, like this one, would be fulfilled in someone like Zerubbabel or fulfilled in a time like this when the people have come back to the land and God has, has restored them, the temple is being built. And you might be tempted to think, is this the one promised? Will this be the time of God's salvation? But ultimately, these promises are not fulfilled in the life of Zerubbabel. We actually know very little about Zerubbabel after this point. This is where many of the Old Testament prophecies leave us. Looking, looking forward, looking for fulfillment in various kings and, and individuals and times of peace and prosperity, but always being let down. But there is one place where Zerubbabel is mentioned, a couple places actually, and that is in the two genealogies we have of Jesus. God is keeping his promises to bring about this righteous branch this one who executes justice and righteousness, who is a truly good ruler, but who also is the Savior from the line of David. And ultimately, this comes about in Jesus. It's almost like God is con- like repeatedly making it abundantly clear, do not hope in humanity. Like, this one king is raised up, and you're like, is this it? Is this the righteous king who will save us? Bring us peace. Nope, clearly not it. Is this the time? Things seem to be going well. Nope. Do not hope in humanity. Do not put your hope ultimately in any human ruler, king, even in a temple made by human hands. Do not put your hope in your own ability to stay faithful. Don't look within yourselves for salvation. Don't look to any government or ruler or movements or causes for salvation. No, look singularly to the Lord. Again, salvation is of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, is what we are told repeatedly. And it's in this way that God fulfills his promise to bring blessing to all the peoples of the earth as he blesses the line, the descendants of Abraham, God's plan was always to bring glorious blessing to all peoples through Jesus. And what he does, as we turn to him, is not only save us objectively for eternity, remove our our guilt and shame, though he certainly does that, but he also begins to change us subjectively. His spirit is not only in our midst as here in Haggai, but is in us and among us, and leading us, and guiding us, and convicting us, and strengthening us, and reminding us of God's promises. In other words, the salvation that God works in us bears fruit. He works in us to increasingly love, and worship, and obey Him, and to commit to a church where we grow, 
where we serve and are served. And he leads us to do these things, not just outwardly, not as an attempt to to try to secure or maintain his affection. Again, God is not just creating us to look good on the outside. God is actually changing our hearts to love him because he has already loved us in Jesus. So, consider your ways. Consider the state and condition and direction of your, of your lives, of your heart. And what role does God's presence and God's glory play in it? As you come to the end of your life, will you be satisfied in the rewards and the the payoff that has come? Or have you given yourselves to things that do not bring life? Let's pray.